Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Melissas. I'm here with Carrie Alaveld. And today, uh, given the lack of fresh indictments in the uh, Trump case, uh, although there's still investigations happening, we're not done with indictments yet. Got pl- Hopefully, we got more of those coming. But today, we're going to talk about Ukraine. We haven't actually talked about Ukraine in a while. So Carrie thought it would be a good idea to sort of catch up, particularly since we're seeing both, uh, you know, there's finally action going on on the battlefield, but also the Ukrainian issue is really deeply seeping into domestic politics, both presidential politics and also in Congress. So it's actually probably a great time to talk about Ukraine. And so Carrie, it's going to interview me. Yay. Yeah, those <laughs> who know me, might realize that my voice doesn't sound like normal, doesn't have its usual beautiful lilt to it. Um, but anyway, I'm just a little, I mean, I'm not super under the weather. I'm just a little under the weather, but my throat isn't, isn't long for, for, for the day here. So I thought, why not just interview Marcos, make him do all the talking. Um, also he's like a genuine fountain of information on, uh, on the Ukraine war and, you know, uh, with Russia and does, you know, 50, at least 50, maybe 70% of our writing. I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember on, on the topic. So, um, and we have a steady audience that's super, been super interested from the very start in the, um, the conflict. Um, so it's kind of an interesting, it's brought in a whole new readership. So in, in any case, let's start. And actually, um, actually, before you even start, Carrie, that's actually, I just want to kind of sort of <laughs> underscore that a little bit, because it's been very, very odd that historically Daily Coast began as an anti-war blog. And uh, during the Iraq war, during uh, George Bush's invasion of Iraq, and uh, obviously liberal audiences have always been sort of Pentagon skeptic, arguing for smaller Pentagon budgets and suspicious of, uh, of military leadership. And so it's been absolutely fascinating because of this war in, in Ukraine, seeing sort of that sh- like absolutely flip-flop in American politics where suddenly liberals are very aggressively defending the Pentagon and uh, celebrating the, the, um, the emergence of American weapons in the war in Ukraine and, and championing Ukraine's fight for its survival and for its own self-determination. And then on the Republican side, they become Russia-loving, Putin-loving. You have uh, um, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville literally oh has placed in, I don't know, it's almost been a year now, hold on all military promotions. So yeah, we don't just- have leadership. We don't have anybody in charge of the Marine Corps or the army, I believe, and it's causing just, like just real to, national security issues. Just today, I think the heads, I'm not exactly sure if they were the head of every military branch, but like several of the heads of the military branch posted an op-ed in the, in the Washington Post saying, this is hurting our, you know, our military readiness. So, the, you know, like, this is the, this, this is the head of our, these, these are the heads of our military, the military chiefs saying, um, we need to figure this out because this is hurting our military readiness, and this is a this is a bad situation. And the idea a decade ago that this is where the Republican Party would be taking us, you know, in from a ruby red state in Alabama, that's the senator that's doing it. It's it's just crazy. It's mind boggling. So anyway, no, it it absolutely is. And you know, Republicans had used to have this sort of very clearly defined brand that they were the party of national security, family values, and lower taxes. And they still, ha- they still, you know, Trump got lower taxes in there, right? But it's amazing how they've surrendered to his MAGA movement that is actually harming American national security uh, to the point where, like, liberals like us are going, like, whoa, we're like, <laughs> you know, yeah, hey, we, we hey, want to hey. see reforms, <laughs> but this isn't exactly what we were talking about. Surrendering to Putin wasn't what we were talking about. And also obviously family values where Trump has completely made a mockery of the whole idea of, uh, of, of any kind of ethical, moral standing. And so it, it's absolutely fascinating. So yeah, so you have Republicans undermining national, actively undermining national security. And, and I know we're going to talk a lot, you know, some later on in the show about that domestic uh, side of things. So I'll save, I'll save my soliloquies for then. Okay, sounds good. Well, I mean, first of all, my burning question is because we were hearing about the counteroffensive for so long, and then it seemed like, you know, it was happening, it was moving slowly. Then there's 
sort of conflicting or murky reports about, well, maybe there's progress and maybe, you know, like there seems sort of like different interpretations of what was going on. Um, Not that it was necessarily bad, but like, wasn't this, you know, we we had that counteroffensive a a year ago or over a year ago, I think, where if all of a sudden they retook Kherson, right? Is that right? Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, and 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 that was like, yeah. Kharkivan, everybody was like, wow, that's amazing. So just bring us up to speed on where we are now. Are they making progress? Um, and, and you know, what do you, what do you think so far of the counteroffensive's effectiveness? All right, let's, let's go back to last fall because it's actually a good place to start. At the time, a general named Sergei Sorovikin took control of the uh, Russian armed forces. And one of the first things that he did was retreat from Kherson, where Russian forces were isolated, cut off from supplies. There's only two bridges that were feeding them and both bridges were destroyed by Ukraine. So he, he pulled out. So that was like what everybody like, ooh, that was dramatic. Like, you know, yay, go Ukraine. Second thing he did though, was what has bedeviled Ukraine ever since is he started creating a network of layered defenses all across a contact line. He realized that, and, and, and Russia did a winter offensive that, that they took Bakhmut after nine months of bloody fighting, which is a strategically insignificant city in Eastern, Eastern Ukraine. But they were, they were not able to really move you know, towards their strategic you know, objectives. And strategic, uh, the difference between tactical is, you know, I wanna take that hill. Strategic is why does it matter that I take that hill? And so taking Kyiv would be a strategic objective. There's some cities, uh, there's a large, two large cities that are side by side uh, um, in, in uh, the Donbas in Eastern Ukraine that are Ukrainian held. If Russia captured those, it would be a strategic victory. That would mean that they would basically occupy all of Eastern Ukraine. They, they never got close. Bakhmut was a tactical decision. There's really no strategic point other than Russia had some roads that made it easy to supply. I mean, that was that was basically it, right? So Russia was focused on Bakhmut, but the real um, Russian effort, what Surovikin uh, was doing was building these layered defenses. And he built them all across this, this front line, you know, a couple thousand miles of front line, but he really laid them on thick in southeastern Ukraine. And that is around the cities of... Uh, where the key Russian-occupied cities of Mariupol, Pakmak, and uh, Militopol sit. And you don't have to remember. I'm not going to quiz you. But this is important because these cities are along what's called the land bridge. The land bridge connects mainland Russia to the Crimean Peninsula. Crimea is occupied by Russia since 2014. They are obsessed with keeping it. Ukraine is obsessed with taking it back. And it is incredibly strategically important. The Black Sea, basically, whoever has Crimea, basically has full control of the Black Sea. This land bridge, it's really the only strategic goal that Putin has been able to accomplish in this year and a half of war. So they, from the beginning, they knew that they had to, they had to, protect it. And so Sorokovin built multi-layers, you know, between four and seven layers, depending on how you count the various layers, but they're anti-tank emplacements, uh, infantry trenches, uh, physical barriers, like these concrete pyramids. Like it's just a whole, and, and that's just what we see. You know, every tree line in the approach has has Russian defenses in it. I mean, it's it's been slow. So over the winter, as Russia really sort of bled at Bakhmut, and while Russia was building these layers of defenses, the West finally started sending modern armor, infantry fighting vehicles, and other weapons to Ukraine and started training them on it and built up these 12 new called storm battalions that were designed, no, brigades, brigades that were designed to launch the counteroffensive in the spring. And so they spent all winter equipping them and training them. Now, supposedly they were going to learn Western-style tactics. And Western-style tactics is what's called combined arms. And combined arms warfare means that every sort of military type of discipline is working in concert, right? So you have artillery, you have air support, you have armor, you have infantry, you have electronic warfare, you have logistics, which is supply, 
you have uh, reconnaissance and surveillance and satellite, like all of these different units work in concert. Now, this is incredibly difficult. This is like getting the guy who knows how to play the flute and the, and the violin, you know, and then throwing them in a room and saying, in three months, we're going to have a real symphony. And it just wasn't, that's now how it works. It takes NATO armies constant drilling, years and years and years of constant drilling to maintain that kind of capability. And even then it is hard. So it was never quite reasonable to expect Ukraine to learn this basically over the winter. And so what happened is on day one of the counteroffensive, Ukraine sent a bunch of tanks and infantry vehicles towards this, the first uh, layer of defenses, and it got wiped out. And if you looked at video, it was just big blob of armor vehicles moving in a single file. Like this is exactly what the Russians have been doing all war and getting decimated, right? And we've been laughing at the Russians for being so incompetent. Ukraine did the exact same thing because Ukraine is from that Soviet tradition and its generals learn that kind of fighting and it's not very effective against prepared positions. So um, that's when Ukraine had to step back and like reassess. Like, And this is where a lot of the stories of like the, the counteroffensive has stalled. It's not going anywhere. You know, there's... Uh, you know, there's these burning Western tanks. And of course, Russia what? like chopped up the video and, you know, played them from 20 different angles. So it looked like there was like 200 <laughs> destroyed tanks, What's but the, it was the same one. What's the time frame on when Ukraine decided they had sort of like regroup, step back and regroup? Is that like a month ago or two months ago? Approximately it's when been, is that? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was at the very end of May when this happened. So we're talking June okay. and July. And so what, what they did is sort of a variation of, of, of Soviet-style doctrine. Um, the way Russia did it around Bakhmut is that they would lay a layer of artillery, you know, for a whole day, just pound the crap out of the position they were trying to, to take. Then they would send some infantry over, because if you sent armor, you know, Ukraine would blow it up really easily with, with anti-tank. And nobody can, not even, you know, Ukrainians, nobody can operate at night. Right? So you're doing it in daylight. Drones are watching all the way. Drones have changed the equation. Not only are they watching, but now there's suicide drones with, with explosive payloads. So you die bombing drones at any approaching um, vehicle. So then they would send a bunch of infantry. And in the case of Bakhmut, the Russians were sending prison labor. So these were people that were pulled out of prison. So they, they literally sent them to die. It was like, it was a suicide. And they would go. And if they got shot, then you'd be like, oops, oh, well, that sucks. Now let's do another day of artillery bombardment. Were those, were those the Wagner mercenaries? Yeah. Just, just, yeah. okay. J yeah. Just, just for those of you who are wondering, the, the group, and we'll get to this later, but the, the Wagner group, the group of mercenaries run by the, I mean, the Prigozhin. late, yeah, uh, yeah, Yevgeny Prigozhin, because it seems apparently he's dead now. Uh, he yeah, passed, yeah, he was, what, a week ago? But anyway, we'll get, yeah. yeah, probably assassinated, exactly. Yeah. So we'll get back to that. But the but what the, the, this cannon fodder, essentially, that they were like, you know, shoving in to like die just to make a foot at a time, you know, advancement on Bakhmut were these uh, mercenaries pulled from jail and um, Russian jail and part of the Wagner group. Okay, so go ahead. Sorry. Right. So that's that was Soviet doctrine. You lay artillery, send infantry. If they die, more artillery until they send infantry. And oh, everybody's, you know, you know, the defenders are either dead or they retreated. And then you lather, rinse, and repeat. That's why it took him nine months to take a single city. And that's why now Ukraine's version isn't sending cannon fodder to die. You can have drones, can, you know, drones go in and you see if there's anything left over. You can send armored infantry vehicles. A lot of them get destroyed, but the Western infantry vehicles have great armor. They protect the troops, which is what's important. We have a lot of other infantry vehicles. We can keep sending them uh, for as long as Ukraine needs. We have thousands that have been decommissioned and in storage. And uh, so it's just important to keep Ukrainian troops alive because that's sort of the, the that is irreplaceable. And so, and then the other big factor was minefields. So Russia laid miles of minefields leading up to the main uh, defensive trench line system. And so getting through those destroyed a lot of vehicles to the point where they realized, you know, we can't send more vehicles. It's too costly. So what they would do is, again, infantry would, uh, would um, take 
advanced positions. And then you have sappers, which are combat engineers, come in at night to manually dig up thousands of mines. So very, very um, dangerous uh, work, very time-consuming work. So they were advancing, but differently <laughs> and slowly. And this gave rise to the, oh, no, Ukraine is, is losing. They can't take territory. But the reality was that from a from a equipment standpoint, most of Ukraine's fighting brigades, these storm brigades, are still mostly intact. And yeah, they're taking casualties. We're not nobody's going to pretend that that this is a a um, septic war. But it's it's a lot of the equipment stuff is is replaceable and it's protecting troops. And so it's just a lot slower and uh, and more methodical and more intentional. And so this idea that you can just send like a whole mass of tanks and armored vehicles across a field, you know, to like trumpet music, you know, and they would overwhelm Russian defenses and within a week they would rout them. Like that, that just wasn't going to happen, not with all the mines and not without Ukraine's inability to engage in, in true combined arms warfare. So they've made it to Rome. And, and what's really interesting is that what um, a week ago we had all these articles about how Ukraine needs to, to negotiate because they're not going to win because they're not getting anywhere in the in their counteroffensive. And in that week, they actually pierced that first major Sirovikin line. So there is a lot of, of really good news coming from Ukraine right now. Um, Russia does not seem to have the troops to properly man the lines because they're being rolled up shockingly quick. And uh, and it's not Ukraine announcing this. This is what's really funny. Ukraine's very tight-lipped. They don't. They're like very quiet about what's happening. This is video that the Russians are actually pushing out, where it's you know showing that Ukraine's Ukraine has advanced beyond the line in multiple locations. So why why uh, would would they why would they push that that video out? So the video, it's there's one drone unit that's pushing them out, Russian drone unit, and it's it's suicide drones attacking. Ukrainian position. So I think they think they're like, look, we're killing Ukrainians. We just destroyed a ah. Ukrainian truck. And so they think they're bragging about about their, you know, effectiveness at, at destroying the Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian forces. But what they're doing is everybody, it's called geolocation. You look at the, you know, you look at a map, you compare yeah. to the tree lines and roads and you go, and everybody's like, holy crap, like unexpectedly, you know, you know, about four or five days ago, we had the first video of, of, of Ukrainian forces on the other side of the Sorovican line. And people are like, that can't wow. be real. It might be like a raiding party. And then a couple of days later, there was like a whole new, you know, release of videos that showed that there's actually a much more pronounced presence on the other side. And Russia did this weird thing that that I, I wrote about the entire, <laughs> since the start of the, of the, um, Counteroffensive, and it's one of the reasons things have moved slowly, is that Ukraine would take a position and that like a little town. I mean, these are like little towns of like 300 people live in them. So we're not talking <laughs> cities. Yeah. And then Russia would like counterattack and counterattack and throw all these troops and equipment at trying to regain the territory they had lost. And it made no sense because if you build these incredibly elaborate defensive lines, it makes sense to stick your troops in those defensive lines where they are protected. And it is incredibly difficult for Ukraine, for any attacker to, to root out, to ferret out um, defending forces from, from well-designed, um, well-built defensive emplacements. And these, the Sorovican line is, by all indications, a really solidly built effective line. So why was Russia throwing its troops out in the open? So if you're Ukraine... It paid to kind of sit back, wait for them to send their waves of counterattacks and just lob artillery, and 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 it was like a you know shooting fish in a barrel. So that also slowed things down. And then the last factor that slowed the counteroffensive down is that Russia is artillery heavy. The, the doctrine is based on artillery, like we talked about, right? Not just attacking, but also defending. And so if you have a wave of incoming troops on both sides of Dundas, you lay a curtain of death. Right, just fire, just cover the field with artillery. It just absolutely wipes out anybody trying to cross across it. And um, Russia had a lot more artillery at the start of the war. And, and what they've been doing in the last three months is that they've been systematically targeting Russian artillery and the logistics that feed that, that artillery with shells. 
And so Ukraine has claimed, you know, they went from, you know, six, seven artillery kills claimed per day over the last year. At the start of the counteroffensive, they're, they're claiming 25 to 35 destroyed Russian artillery batteries a day. Now, these are their huh. claims, but a lot of it is actually um, verified, just visually verified, because they'll release the videos of the suicide drones, you know, blowing up artillery or, or um or uh, guided rockets, you know, there's lots of ways that Ukraine has more range, has better Western gear that can, that can reach out. So now what we're seeing is we're seeing advances, you know, videos of advancing Ukrainian forces without any artillery response. And mm. uh, we haven't seen that before. So that also makes it easier to advance when you don't have to face this curtain of death in front of you. So all of this takes time and, and really <laughs> there's no hurry. I mean, there, there's a different hurry that we can talk about, right, politically, but militarily, right. there's this idea where people say, well, it's got to happen before the, the fall rains, you know, because it rains, it gets all muddy and, and, and it's hard yep. for, for armored vehicles to cross. But what we've seen is they're not using armored vehicles for maneuver warfare. What they're doing mm -hmm. is they're using those armored vehicles to support the infantry from way back. And right. so infantry doesn't care about mud. Infantry can walk around the mud. I mean, they can wade through the mud. So... This can continue indefinitely through the fall into the winter when that ground freezes up. And so if it's just a question of degrading Russian artillery, degrading Russian logistics, great. If Russia wants to keep counterattacking out in the open, fantastic, even better. And what we're finding now is that it took two months to breach the first defensive line uh, around the city of Tokmak, which is one of the most strategic cities. In one week, they had breached the, the second one. And that second one is supposed to be the main line. The Sorovican line wow. is the main line. And within a week, they had gotten behind it. So that suggests, again, it's not for sure, but it suggests that Russia ran out of troops by just throwing them out, out in the open, weirdly, for, for reasons that, that appear to be more political than military. Like nobody wanted to let Putin know that they lost a town or Eurozane, that they right. lost a town of Robotine, you know, so like keep yep. sending troops because we don't want to, we don't want to deliver that bad news to Putin. And so now their actual defensive line appears to be weirdly depleted. So fingers uh, do crossed. Do you know how many, do you know yeah. how, do we know how, approximately how many of these defensive lines there are if they pierce the first one? They seem to they seem to have pierced the second one now. Do we know how many might be left? Or yeah, there's I mean, again it because they're like it's like a spider web, right? So it's you know it's not as easy to be like one, two, three, four. I see. Uh, and between every line, every tree line has trenches, so it's not even. But gotcha. the prepared lines are more sophisticated because they'll have an anti-tank ditch, and then they'll have yep. the physical barriers and barbed wire, and then the infantry positions, and then vehicle fighting positions. So it's a little more intricate than just than just trenches, um, there are uh, anywhere between, you know, three and seven, depending on how you count it. But okay. it's, it's, it's like a spider web. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's going to be slow going. Now, what's really particularly noteworthy about this line, the Sorovican line, it's considered to be the hardest. Uh, one, it was the most intricately designed and had the most layers. Um, so, that was a big part of it, but it's also on the highest ridge line of that entire corner of the country. So mm -hmm. Ukraine is attacking upwards and militarily, that's mm -hmm. the hardest thing to do. It don't matter if it's, you know, a hundred feet, it, it, it attacking upwards. The defense has a huge ginormous advantage, but what that's going to do is that when Ukraine Which takes is that position, it's all downhill from there all the way to the, um, to the SFC to cut right. off that. At, uh, just to give it a, 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 and I'm no military historian, but a mild, you know, um, uh, historical comparison is like, you know, what Americans might be familiar with is, is D-Day and, and, you know, a bunch of allied forces trying to rush, ru run up the beaches of Normandy, you know, at, a, at a, the Axis powers at, at Germany and their dug in pillboxes and things mm -hmm. like that. So, you know, I mean, we, we just, people just ran into fire just knowing that the guy before them might just get shot and they might be right up next. Um, but anyway, that, that's what I think of when I think of, you know, the, the difficulty of trying to ascend up a, a, a hill and just people just kind of getting mowed down. I mean, 
Yep, and the so, Battle of anyway. Bunker Hill. Like, there's there's a lot of. I mean, and these are not like attacking a a mountaintop. I mean, these are hills, right? Uh, and so once Ukraine and right now it looks like they're they're looping around. So they may able you know they may able be able to actually roll up that line without even having to hit it dead on, which would be like next level amazing. Once they have that, they'll have the heights. So then it'll be Ukraine that has the advantage looking down on the Russian defense, uh, much of the way down, you know, as they as they move their way south. So it's it's again, it's it's the hardest line. There are others. Um, now, a defensive line is only as effective as the troops in it to to actually to fight back. And this is where we're starting to see that 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 curious situation where Ukraine is too easily penetrating the Sirovikin line that just wouldn't be possible if they, it was actually fully manned and operated. So I, I, we're starting to suspect that, uh, that Russia just doesn't have the troops anymore, that they wasted them, squandered them all out in the open. And, and again, so you have infantry. It's going to take a while for the armor to come in because you have the engineers and the sappers behind them clearing out the mines. And you can't just clear out a little lane because then Russia just targets that one lane, right? So you got you got to clear it off in a broad uh, range, but by having the infantry, Rus- uh, Ukrainian infantry, in those trenches, obviously the sappers can operate behind with a lot more uh, security and safety than having Russians in the trenches firing down on those troops. Right. Okay. So some positive news. Um, come, you know, none of this. Americans have a very short attention span. <laughs> we like quick wins. Yeah. Big, bold, the myth of the quick war. Know. Quick war. Quick yeah. war. And the quick war. The quick war. The shock and awe war that went on for I don't know yeah. what twenty years. Um, so <laughs> something like that. Anyway, who's counting? Let me just ask this: Is there any way in which the apparent assassination of uh, this leader of the Wagner Group, who, who, um, for those of you who might remember, there was suddenly this armed rebellion marching towards Moscow? And it was led by uh, the Wagner Group and Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin, who I may be slaughtering his name. Um, and he, you know, and and they all of a sudden they realized that they just they basically marched. They were like within a hundred miles of Moscow yeah, or something. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. They and they got nothing. so close. There's nothing. nothing no one. There's no resistance. No truth. Nothing. No nothing. No nothing. And so then then they were like, okay. Um, maybe we should call this off because the next thing is, is that we take Moscow. Right. And then at that yeah. point you're, you're pretty crossways with Putin. Um, so anyways, uh, he has that, the leader of that group has apparently been assassinated. Um, you may have seen the news that he was listed in it as uh, being a passenger on a plane that got downed, I think maybe by an explosive. Is that what it is? Yeah. It, it seemed yeah, like yeah. there was maybe a bomb on the plane or something like that. I mean, we're, we're, it's still a little murky. It's confirmed that it's been confirmed that he's been on the plane. Uh, who's responsible for that plane dropping out of the sky is still unverified, let's say, officially. But I mean, there's, we don't, there's we lots, don't of, there's lots of conspiracy theories. We don't. And just the, you know, his his associates say that he was on a plane, but that could all be a ruse to like, and he's hiding and, you know, he's in Argentina or something. But I think we can pretty you know, much. Assassination. Do, I mean, you never know. Until we know otherwise that that he was assassinated, and not only him, but also the the top core leadership of the Wagner Group was was all on that plane. So and, and, and they were flying to Moscow to talk to 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 Putin, and because Putin. Putin gave him gave him uh, gave him um, apparently part of the negotiations was that he got he got an amnesty. And this just goes yeah. to remind you, like nobody, you don't, you don't make a deal with Putin. You can't negotiate oh, with Putin. Oh, never. I mean, most people have been. As soon as that happened, as soon as that march happened, that armed rebellion happened, everybody was like, "He's got, he's got days, weeks, you know, yeah. may, maybe months, but probably not." So yeah. this this seems all within the realm of you know Putin pushing anyone um, who he yeah. doesn't like out a window, you know. So. Mm-hmm. But here's what I do wonder: Does is that figuring? I mean, that is that they were fighting a lot of, like we talked about in Bakhmut. This is the reason I brought it up. They were a lot of the Russian troops were being reinforced by these mercenaries who they were using as cannon fodder that were from the Wagner Group. I know that a lot of the Wagner Group, you know, the the people who were left, some of them have been, you know, sort of just consumed or subsumed by the. Um, by the Russian military. They've just been sucked into the Russian military. 
but they're but they're not the force that they were. Do you think that's part of what um, is happening? Is, is that having any material effect on the war, in your opinion? The the Wagner was 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 sort of two parts, right? They had about thirty thousand contract professional soldiers, mercenaries, uh, and then they were recruiting the prison fodder, and those are the ones they were sending in human waves to um you know during the attack on they weren't sending their, their own like <laughs> their real soldiers okay. they were sending the 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 prison fodder the prison fodder right. has been what was left over of it and and you know reportedly you know at least 20,000 of them were were killed um in the attack on on Bakhmut um those guys i think have been subsumed into penal units in the russian army but the, they're 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 literally like they don't even give them weapons they just go out there and step on landmines and so oh, they're, there, they're there to identify Ukrainian defensive positions. Oh, they're firing oh, from over goodness. there. Okay, now we can target that 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 you know with artillery. So, um, yeah, it is it is the absolute worst of worst jobs. Um, God, I thought but, they were at least like you know running into a, a you know bunch of bullets carrying a you know some oh, sort of weapon. I mean, that's no, in like, fact, you'd send ugh. the first wave, and the first wave would have a backpack full of ammo, and when they were when they'd go down, then the next wave would pick up that backpack and, you know, until they got to wherever that, that the, uh, the position was that they wanted to go. And so it was, it was, I mean, it was so grim. It's so, so grim. Brutal, brutal, very Russian in, so, in context. Yeah, very Russian. But um, so the professional Wagnerites are out of the war and that's, that's about an army of about 30,000. And not only the numbers aren't, you know, if you have 300,000 Russian troops in Ukraine, 30,000, it's like, okay, 10%, big deal. Um, but they were actually, they had experience, they were trained, they were, they're actually good soldiers. And while the Russian military has been trying to recruit them, by all indications, that is going very poorly. And uh, mm. and so a lot of these mercenaries are, are, they're quitting, they're, you know, there's a lot of muttering about revenge, and I don't think much will come of it. There's no real leadership to, to organize any kind of uprising. But what you do is you have a bunch of really disgruntled, um, experienced mercenaries who are like "f you" and like we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna go to your. It's, ne side. it's never good for for a leader of a of a no. country that isn't super popular and his war is not going super well. <laughs> you don't want any armed like Ferguson. Well, yeah, Ferguson yeah. yeah, took a yeah he took a major city Rostov on Dom. Um, in that was the first major city that that his his rebellion captured, and people came out and cheered, like it was literally that whole like flower you know roses petals uh, yeah that reaction and you know Putin saw that and, oh yeah and, and so there is clearly a desire and now to be very clear Prigozhin's a war criminal he is yeah he was about the he most was no worst of the worst. And uh, he was, the people he attracts are right wing. I mean, just think of like, like the worst of our right wing MAGA people who, um, who wanted Russia to use nuclear weapons to like, I mean, cause we're fighting with one hand tied behind her back. It's just like the worst of the right wing bloodthirsty Russians. That's who he was like rallying. So let's not, let's not sit there and go like he was some kind of freedom fighter or a hero. Um, good thing he's dead. I wish he would have taken... Putin with them, but yeah. <laughs> nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna, yeah, no, I don't think anybody's gonna actually miss him. But so his people are these like right wing, you know, not literally Nazi types, like, you know, Nazi tattoos, um, far right, white nationalist, you know, virulently anti gay, anti brown people, anti everything that's not like pure white Slavic uh, Russian ethnicity. So um, yeah, and they're sitting there at this point, they're sitting the war out that helps. For sure, it helps not having to deal with with them, um, and you know who knows? Maybe it'll be a destabilizing force in Russian politics for a while to come. Right, and do you think that makes? I I saw some uh, op ed I, within the past couple of days was like, now that Prigozhin's dead, maybe um, Putin's more likely to negotiate. Is that magical thinking? Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, the idea okay. there is that Prigozhin was pushing from the right, from the nationalist right, and not to make any concessions. Um, there is clearly signal from Russia, um, from their troll farms and their, their paid influencer campaign to push for negotiations. And I think they realize that, that 
they are stuck right now and they're being pushed back and their lines are collapsing. And so they want to freeze the conflict right now. And, oh, it's about peace. It's about a ceasefire. We need people need to stop dying. What they can do is when they can spend two, three years rebuilding until the next phase of the war. Right. And, and so everybody knows like the Ukraine war started in 2014. So real quick, because we need to get to domestic and we're, we're moving oh, slow. Yeah. I mean, I've been interested, but, um, and hopefully everybody else is too. Stick with us. We're getting to the good right. stuff. Um, yeah. It, it like just recently now they're the Ukrainians are, this is quick, are getting trained on F 16s. Big, big deal or, or not big deal. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the camp. It's going to be increased. I'm, yeah. I'm in the camp that it, it's not a big deal. A lot of a lot of people claim that you know Ukraine has moved slowly because they can't do combined arms without aircraft, and NATO is definitely heavily dependent on on air power. The thing is that they they do have aircraft, right? It's the stuff that suicide drones are doing, that long range rocket artillery is doing. It's exactly the sort of thing that air power is designed to do, which is to target, you know, individual vehicles and, and destroy defensive um, infantry and, and equipment. So they don't lack the functionality of, of air support. Now, what it'll be nice if they're given long range missiles is that uh, Russia has these Frickin' ginormous bombs, and he put wings on them, and then they can lob them from 40 miles behind enemy lines. So Russia also doesn't have air superiority. Nobody has air superiority. There's too many air defenses. But they'll launch these, these bombs from 40 miles out, and these bombs, like, pack a huge punch, and they, they're actually probably Russia's most effective weapon right now. So what, what um, F-16s will be able to do is, with the right missiles, it'll be able to hit those, you know, those, those Russians from that distance. And I suspect that not a lot of them will, but what it will do is it will force Russia to put, push them even further back, which will make them even less right. effective or to from less effective to just stop using them because right, right. Russia is very sensitive to losing planes and uh, doesn't like to risk them. So a lot of that is just, I think that's going to be the biggest factor. Second one is they'll be able to launch long range anti-ship missiles. And so they can sit there over Ukrainian territory and target Russian naval ships uh, at other Sevastopol naval base, which is at the southern tip of Crimea. Uh, and so, again, it'll, what it'll do is it'll push that na naval fleet closer to mainland Russia away from there just because they don't want to risk. It'll be, you know, and those ships launch a lot of the rockets and missiles that have been hitting civilian targets this last year. So it'd be nice to get them out of the way. It wouldn't make a difference, big difference on the front line right now, but on the more macro level, yeah, it will help. Okay, so... Let's turn to domestic. Now, I, the good news is, is that anybody who listens to us regularly, we have spent some time on the Republican Party, obviously the debate going on in the Republican primary on foreign policy. We talked a little bit in both of the last episodes, I think, about this Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy um, going after each other on foreign policy. Nikki Haley, former UN ambassador, also former governor of South Carolina, with real foreign policy experience, taking the side of Ukraine and saying we cannot abandon them. We are trying to prevent a world war. And Vivek Ramaswamy, you are a, <laughs> a piece of like ignorant, I don't know. I'm not going to say it. But anyway, um, she was very annoyed by him and said, you have no foreign policy experience. And it shows, it shows. And she was extremely, and he was doing the Trump thing. We should just end the war and just basically like give Ukraine to Putin. I mean, that's essentially what he was I saying. I mean, literally, okay. literally, yeah. not even, not even the not consequences even of his, yeah, no, because there's yeah. like, if you do X, the consequence will be that Putin wins, right? No, he's literally saying, give yeah. Putin what he wants. Remember last time, last episode, we were talking about how, the vague was having this like mini boomlet um, mm -hmm. that Trump had dropped off a little bit. The vague was coming up. Okay. I just rechecked the numbers this morning and both nationally and in a lot of statewide polling, Haley has actually moved up. Okay. So she's actually moved right. up into like, a third place position in Iowa. Okay. I don't want anyone to think that like I'm saying Haley's going to not, you know, like take this, but right now in Iowa, it's mostly Trump, DeSantis and Haley. Right. And then it and then um, New Hampshire, it's it's looking kind of like a similar thing where she's moved up into the space where either Tim Scott or Vivek was. So, you know, she may have gotten something out of that. She may have gotten a real boost, a legitimate boost. But what is it doing? Have what kind of effect is it having that this is the type of debate that the Republican Party is engaged in 
while President Joe Biden is, you know, holding together a very strong coalition of uh, Western partners who have been, you know, supplying and backing Ukraine. Um, and that that and now the Republicans are saying, like, you know, the Trump part of the Republican Party is like, we should just just cut and run. Just tell tell that like we can. First of all, the hubris of we can tell the Ukrainians what to do, you know, but like what 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 kind of effect is this having? I mean, right now, roughly 70 percent of the Republican primary electorate is supporting a candidate that is Ukraine skeptic, wants to either withdraw or hand things over to Putin. Uh, they went out. They'll, they'll share those ridiculous memes. We'll show like Lahaina and they'll say like, we can spend money on Ukraine, but we can't spend money on Hawaii. It's like, you know, we, we can do both, believe it or not. We can do, we, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We, we and, need troops at the southern border. I mean, yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, yeah. and a lot of that equipment, a lot of that money that we were sending to Ukraine, it's actually obsolete equipment that we're actually paying to keep stored and maintained uh, which is actually going to save us money in the long run because we don't need to we need to maintain these these you know these old vehicles and so um, it is it is things would probably be different had Zelensky done what Donald Trump had asked him to do and to make up some fake Hunter Biden investigation uh, back in 2020 right this is the reason that Trump got got impeached the first time and you almost forget that this is all connected that this was exactly it's all connected and so trump has got a real hate on for ukraine and zelensky because zelensky didn't play along with his with his um fake scheme and uh and then his his acolytes are following along not because they actually um really love putin or it's because their their god savior cult leader has told them that uh that putin good Zelensky bad. And that's, that's as, as you know, that's as deep as they want to go with that. Now it is problematic from a, I, I know international partners have got to be nervous that if Trump were to somehow win again next year, that, that it would not only probably, I mean, it would absolutely mean the end of American aid to Ukraine, but also could potentially be the end of NATO because Trump has made it very clear. He wants out of NATO and, um, and I don't think a second term Trump would be constrained the way that a lot of a lot of, uh, you know, adults in the room constrained him because he, he wanted out of NATO the first term and he was sort of talked out of it. Um, I think he would be emboldened a second time to do whatever he wanted without any consequences or regards. And he would do a better job of surrounding himself with all the conspiracy cranks and there'd be no adults in that room. So the, the allies understand it. And I actually got to think that. Biden has to understand this. And so there's a lot of slow walking, a lot of support, including, you know, we, sh- we should announce that we're going to we're going to send our own F-16s, not just Europeans. We should announce long range rocket uh, systems, cruise missiles. We should announce those things because it is in Biden's interest, not just Ukraine, but in Biden's own political, personal political interest to have a Ukrainian victory to celebrate heading into the November elections next year, as opposed to dragging these things out. Absolutely. And this is weird, like, oh, we don't want to provoke Russia. Russia, they're provoked. I mean, they invaded they're Ukraine. Provoked. There's there's nothing else they can do at this point except nuclear weapons. And nobody thinks they're going to use, even they say they're not going to use nuclear weapons. Every once in a while they threaten it, but they're not going to use nuclear weapons. And so the the I don't understand after so effectively leading this coalition and rallying the Europeans that the Europeans have now like ran past us being more aggressive in supporting Ukraine than the U S we should be announcing. I mean, there's a, we announce uh, tanks and armored vehicles piecemeal. We're going to send 30 and we're going to send 60. What if Biden said, you know what? We're sending a thousand tanks and 3000 armored vehicles. We're, we're giving them everything we have. Putin, you can't win this thing. Like, how does that change the equation? Then trickling out a few dozen yeah. vehicles at a time. And then Putin thinks, okay, if I can hold out long enough to the 2024 election, and if Trump wins, I got this. Just announce it all, get that into a supplemental spending bill, send it all over. This is all surplus material, right? So it's not, you're not paying full price for these, for this equipment. And then the 2024 election doesn't give Putin a bailout situation. And we're at a situation where like, okay, Biden can say, yeah, we've done, we've done everything. Like they got it all. Right. They got everything. We all our surplus stuff. They have it. 
And uh, and then there's challenges training for Ukrainians and then providing logistics. So it's not like everybody thinks you can just send everything at once. You can't. This is, right. but you can announce it all. And then yeah, you right. can deliver it as Ukraine's ability to to absorb it via trained personnel and their logistics system. But but uh, it's already been announced. And then Putin knows like, okay, crap. Like, <laughs> I mean, uh, we're not we're not going to degrade Ukraine. Let me take let me take just a few minutes here to run over a couple of the domestic political you know things related to this, and then give you a last word on it. Okay. So right. just so everybody knows, if 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 there's you know I have. I'm not a foreign policy expert. I do pay attention to the polling. Um, and, you know, right now I will say there's not as much support for continuing to support Ukraine. Okay. And that's not just among Republicans. There's like, I can't remember the exact number, but it's somewhere like somewhere in the fifties, low fifties, people think that we've already done enough for Ukraine. And if the, and then you, the you know, ha, are we not doing enough for Ukraine? for Ukraine is somewhere in like 45 plus, 45, 48%, something like that. So, you know, there's a slight lean in the American public right now among all voters, right? Um, that, um, you know, maybe we've, we're, we've done enough. Okay. I, I don't believe that. I, I wouldn't yeah. argue for that. No, I totally right. agree yeah. with, um, uh, with what Marcos is saying. Uh, we should just be throwing everything we have at that because the sooner we, you know, uh, the, the sooner Ukraine wins that war, the sooner we win that war, right? So, um, so, and they are fighting, they're fighting for their sovereignty, but they are fighting the Western, they are fighting for the Western world, for democracy. Okay, I want to say one other thing. The reason to not slow walk that too, we're seeing it right now in the Senate Republican Conference with Mitch McConnell, who in the past couple of months has had two episodes where he's literally frozen for like 30 seconds at a time during a press conference. He is not well, he's frail, he's thin. Mm -hmm. And he is actually a, a big proponent of, we need to be on Ukraine's side, we need to fund, blah, blah, blah. You know, Kevin McCarthy's job, um, as far as he's concerned, is just continuing to hold the gavel. He isn't working for the American people. He's not even working for Trump. His, he wakes up every day thinking, how can I can, can continue to hold the gavel? I think, you know, if if he didn't have to, if it was no skin off his nose, he would probably fund you, you know, go ahead and fund Ukraine. But he's got this real right wing part of, you know, extremist, not just a small faction, but an extremist faction of the uh, Republican caucus in the House that doesn't want to fund Ukraine, um, that doesn't believe they're taking the taking the Trump position and they're willing to shut down the government and all kinds of stuff. Right. So um, the longer this war goes on, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the, the numbers don't get that much better with the American public. And on top of that, then, you know, the people who actually champion in the Republican Party, um, who actually seem invested in continuing to fund Ukraine, the McConnell wing of the party is is losing steam. I mean, if he's re he's like a symbolic representative of the fact that the McConnell wing of the party is is at the moment descending. Yeah, well, the decline. you know, yeah, decline. So you know, the sooner you we finish what what you know, Putin started. Okay, Putin yeah. started it. The sooner we finish what Putin started, we bring that to a close the better for everyone, the better for the White House, the better for Biden politically, the better for Ukraine, the better for Democrats, the better for democracy. Um, otherwise, it's just a continuing uphill battle because, you know, if, if I mean, I, you know, I, I've made my point. I, I yeah, it's, there's a it's whole even, lot of domestic reasons to go hard mm -hmm. at it. Yeah. So no, and Republicans are going to... Yeah, they're they're rallying around it. You know, one of their excuses is that uh, we need to focus on China. And yeah, it's going to be a lot easier to focus on China if there's no Russia threatening Europe. Like you literally are having Ukraine decimate and destroy Russia's military might. That completely opens up the uh, our ability to really focus strategically on on bolstering democracy and our allies in in Asia. So. Um, there, there is no real counter argument to uh, Ukraine aid other than they are pissed off that Zelensky didn't play along. And so therefore they have their hate on and they're going to pretend to be isolationist, but not when they're talking about China. Suddenly they're not isolationists anymore. They want to talk tough about China. 
and uh, not really. They're they're the same. They're the same. They're, they are they are right now. They are allied, and they will work together. And the best thing you can do to really really deter China from making any move on Taiwan or any other other neighbors is to show them the consequences of doing so. And that means being united. It means being single focused on, on victory, on defending those principles of national sovereignty and democracy and human rights. And when you do that, then it it's a lot easier than, than Xi's, you know, Xi's um, calculations in China become a lot more difficult. You know, Taiwan doesn't look that easy after all. And what happens to our economy if the whole West shuts us down and so on and so forth. So um, the political situation is just going to get worse. It's really easy to agitate against foreign spending, foreign donations of any kind, right? I mean, this has always been right. demonizing, even though the overall foreign budget, the oh, foreign God, assistance like budget, it's, it's 10 billion out of, out of trillions of dollars. It's nothing. Um, it's, it's easily yeah. demonized. And then this is, this is a much bigger number than a 10, than the $10 billion that we, you know, we send to other nations. So it's gonna, the Republicans are gonna keep agitating towards it. Clearly the mega crowd is on it. The, the memes are flying fast and furious and, there's there's a there's a schedule. I don't think there's a military schedule. I think Ukraine's going to need to do what it needs to do, and it may take some time to liberate all of their territory. But there is a political schedule, which is why I think it's important for Biden to move faster to 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 commit a large number of military aid, even if we can't deliver it overnight. Just commit it. You know, send Putin that that message that they can't he, that Donald Trump can't bail him out, and uh, and. Uh, and then do everything we can to, because the 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 constant. And this is my last thought. The constant refrain from the West is, "We'll support Ukraine as long as it takes," which is freaking stupid. Support Ukraine to win as quickly as possible. Yeah, like you don't want an endless as quickly as possible, which means you gotta open the coffers, send everything they can right now, train them. It ain't gonna happen this year, but if you can, we can actually prepare for a a decisive summer 2024 campaign and let Joe Biden ride that into uh, election night, you know, big victor savior of Ukraine. Like I'll, it'd be freaking brilliant. So it would be that, amazing. Yeah, it would be. That would be the, the best case scenario. And, uh, and it takes much more bold action than we're seeing from Biden. The, started great. The best, the best Trump and all those, and all, all of them could do with that is it wasn't Biden. Kamala Harris was pulling the strings. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh man, I oh it would be I it would be fun to see them try to try to you know to diminish that. So that's that's where we are. And I think Carrie, I think that's the show, right? And this is a longer show than really? usual because I I said I could do my soliloquy and I could soliloquy all I could solilo- soliloquy forever. I so questions, I drew I drew you out. I drew you out. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Carrie, for for the great questions and the great um, uh, moderating of this discussion. Uh, thanks to Walter for producing and everybody that helps behind the scenes like Paul. And thank you, the viewer, listener, reader, writer, participant in the Daily Coast world and our efforts to protect our democracy and save it from the the MAGA movement that seeks to literally end it. A lot is at stake. So I'm glad to have you guys with us. I love you all. I appreciate you more than you can imagine. Thank you so much for joining us. Please like, share, recommend, do all those things and see you guys next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks.